0: Hello folks, and welcome to another SACPA session. SACPA acknowledges that this event takes place on the lands of the Blackfoot people and Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3. And we pay respect to their past, present, and future cultural heritage beliefs and relationship to the land. SACPA commits to assist reconciliation efforts by raising awareness of the ways past and present injustices can be reconciled. SACPA is very thankful for our continuing support we receive from the University of Lethbridge, Show Spotlight, and the Lethbridge Herald. Today, we're very happy to introduce to you Kathleen Ma. Kathleen, thank you very much for joining us. Um, Kathleen is a recent graduate of the University of Lethbridge with a BA in anthropology and a minor in women and gender studies. She originally came, or she literally comes from Calgary, Alberta, but has made her home in Lethbridge for the past five years. Her research is based around drawing attention to and fostering conversations around structural violence. Her focus is on critical public health and anti-masking groups known as freedom fighters. Kathleen plans in continuing her work with, within medical anthropology at Carlton University in the fall as she enters the Masters of Arts program there. Kathleen, thanks so much. We're very much looking forward to your talk.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, Hello, everyone. Um, uh, I'm Kathleen, as you may have just heard. Um, I'm from the University of Lethbridge, um, and today I'll be be presenting my work entitled Colonialism and COVID-19, the effect of public health and anti-maskers on vulnerable populations. Um, Before I go further, um, I would like to just do my own quick land acknowledgement. I acknowledge that I am presenting from Lethbridge, which is on the lands of the Blackfoot people of the Canadian Plains, and I pay respect to the Blackfoot people, past, present, and future, while recognizing and respecting their cultural heritage beliefs and relationship to the land. The city of Lethbridge is also home to the Metis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. And I also want to recognize that this land acknowledgement is only one small step in the direction of reconciliation. and I call on all settlers to take action to build relationships and give respect to the people's lands that we occupy. Perfect. All right, so um, my PowerPoint presentation, I think we'll just pop up. Perfect. All right. Um, so in this presentation, I hope to illuminate the ongoing colonial agenda and, ex- and its extension into COVID-19 and public health relations. Um, Particularly, I will focus on how anti mass groups who refer to themselves as freedom fighters um, have interacted with formal institutions um, like public health and vice versa, to create expendable populations during the COVID-19 pandemic. I hope to demonstrate how these freedom fighters and public health alike perpetuate colonialism through a new arena of the COVID-19 pandemic. This perpetuation is performed via the stabilization of structures like white supremacy and white nationalism that both groups occupy. Um, On this next slide here, I'm just gonna show you a little bit of, um, just a map out what you can expect to hear today. Um, I will begin with a brief description of freedom fighters to contextualize their groups and their actions. Um, I will then turn to an analysis of public health and I will end with a broader discussion of colonialism and its extension Um, into the pandemic, which will include a discussion of white supremacy, white nationalism and other structures of power and their relations to conceptions of expendability. Um, Now on this next slide here, um, I'll be providing just a quick little history um, just to contextualize what I'm gonna be talking about today. Um, So in the book, Stolen City, Racial Capitalism and the Making of Winnipeg, Owen Taze presents the longstanding colonial tradition at the heart of development and expansionism. Um, He states that capitalism and racism are inseparable entities in which the continuation of one means the other as well. Additionally, he provides a detailed historical background of Western expansion that allows readers to understand the creation of the West. Canada's political system as a whole was founded upon ideas of racial order and hierarchy. In the case of Western Canada, these ideas were confounded based on the practices deployed during the era of expansion, especially. Um, Conquest of geography enabled the promotion of a dominant sex and a dominant race, in which colonization became a carceral experience for those unable to fit the ideal body produced by these racist, sexist ideologies. Um, Indigenous people suffered apartheid and racial cleansing under the pretense of a natural hierarchy. um, Land was stolen by enforcing social norms and treaties were violated. And any resistance was met with extreme violence. Um, during this time, indigenous apartheid and genocide left a huge gap in labor requirements necessary for the development of the West. Um, this caused the colonialists to look back overseas for a migrant labor, labor force that could facilitate the growth needed for expansion. Um, on this next slide here, um, we get to kind of see what this migrant um, labor force looks like. Um, the people that actually ended up coming over to do this work were not the people that colonialists intended. Um, those people that they wanted who fit this kind of ideal body standard um, were white Anglo-Saxon Protestants or the WASP. Um, they, um, most, for the most part, didn't want to fill this labor requirement, so colonialists looked back overseas um, for cheaper labor, um, like those from Slavic and Asian countries, particularly China. Um, and as these uh, groups um, migrated over, um, colonialists ex- established exclusionary zones um, to maintain white purity, um, and those that were able to cross the border from these other countries faced extremely exploitative and dangerous working conditions because of that. Um, Western expansion and the colonization of the prairies focused on creating a white colony and maintaining domination that was natural to the wasp. Um, This is some of the historical basis for the ideology of white supremacy in Western Canada um, that continues to this day. In fact, it's a fallacy and a very violent one at that, that Canada does not suffer from the same systemic racism as the United States. In fact, until recently, much of Canada's history has been sanitized and filtered in a form of exceptionalism. This is relevant to several areas of racialized experiences, especially those of Black and Indigenous peoples. Um, Residential schools, slavery, apartheid, missing and murdered Indigenous women, the reservation system, these are all just some of many attempts of erasing color from Canada. Now this ugly history of Canada's participation in unsavory practices um, is effectively erased from education systems across the board. Um, The level of exceptionalism paints a pretty picture of Canada um, that reduces the effect that white supremacy has had on the area and creates patriots. Um, Now we'll see on this next slide here um, that I conducted research with a group of people online self-identified as freedom fighters from May to August 21. Um, Freedom fighters are a very complex group um, and to outsiders, people would identify them as anti-mask, anti-lockdown and anti-COVID vaccine protesters. Um, The name Freedom Fighter is how they refer to themselves because they believe terms like anti-masker makes people believe that they wish to stop people from wearing masks. Um, Freedom Fighters claim, at least during my study, that's kind of changed a little bit since, um, that this is not the case. What they oppose is the mandate, not the mask itself, um, meaning they do not see themselves as anti-anything. Um, but simply pro-freedom. Now I worked with this community in order to understand um, their cultural and social function in in relationship to the pandemic and conceptualizations about what exactly was going on during. Um, Freedom fighters themselves believe that the COVID-19 pandemic is not real. Um, Most that I spoke to and learned from informed me um, that they believe the pandemic to be a tactic of what they called the globalist regime which is an unelected foreign entity um, that sought to facilitate the great reset, um, which meant that all measures governments were taking were violations of citizens' rights and freedoms. To be very clear, freedom fighters do acknowledge the existence of the COVID-19 virus itself, um, but do not believe it is deadly enough to facilitate the government from taking actions like masks, vaccines, and lockdown mandates. Now on this next slide here, we're gonna ask ourselves who are the globalists and what is this great reset? Um, now the freedom fighters define the globalists as those quote, who are believed to be orchestrating and driving the globalization agenda. This would include the heads of various multinational corporations, politicians, military and government officials, academics, and even as some believe religious leaders, end quote. These globalists, um, who range from everyday academics to people like Bill Gates, are believed to be perpetuating a global agenda known as the Great Reset, um, which is a detailed plan written by Klaus Schwab um, to bring communism to places like Canada and end freedom. Freedom, fightler, freedom fighters greatly fear the effect that communism will, and as they claim is currently having, on what they call the Canadian way of life. Um, These conceptions are deeply rooted in conspiracy theory theory like QAnon and others that target the rich, elite, and liberal progressive agendas as enemies of freedom. Now, I want to be clear that I'm in no way attempting to disregard freedom fighters' fears. Um, Although the majority of them are white, cisgender, and heterosexual, um, they are not necessarily a group of purely privileged people. Um, Many of them come from lower socioeconomic families without access to higher education and feel greatly alienated from a larger Canada that is progressively moving away from systems and structures that benefit them. This is a scary time for people and freedom fighters are fearful of a changing world and their place within that world. Um, However, I also wish to highlight that this is not an excuse for their actions um, because they have enacted harm and they continue to perpetuate structural problems. Um, their response to globalism, the globalist, the great reset, all of those things is white nationalism and white supremacy. They close their ranks in order to protect their way of life and perform this protection by refusing to wear masks to get vaccinated to follow lockdown protocols. Um, and it is this performance um, that reproduces structural violence and produces expendability. Um, Now, on this next slide here, um, before I go into more detail about the performance of anti-masking, I would like to take a moment to elaborate on the term structural violence itself. Um, Paul Farmer describes structural violence as, quote, the violence exerted systemically, that is, indirectly, by everyone who belongs to a certain social order, Uh, end quote, meaning Everyone sitting in this kind of room, I guess we could say, um, engages in structural violence unconsciously or consciously. Um, We take part in everyday activities that we may not realize are inherently harmful. Um, In Canada, one very large part of structural violence um, is the ongoing colonial agenda, which I'm going to return to in just a minute. Now, it's this kind of violence that is systemic and built into every structure and institution that makes up Canada and, more broadly, Western culture. Um, And at the base of these is the idea that whiteness has and always will be the norm and the superior way of being. Um, Freedom fighters embody this white supremacy in several dynamic ways. Um, More specifically, though, they embody white, heterosexual, cisgender, able-bodied masculine supremacy, which is a huge mouthful. Um, Though not all freedom fighters are white, heterosexual, cisgender, able-bodied men, all freedom fighters seek to reproduce this body, normalize and stabilize this identity through their actions, expressions, and beliefs of anti-masking. Now on this next slide here, um, I wish to kind of model what I mean for this. Um, I'm gonna read out a conversation um, had between two men. Um, who i refer to as chris and james on a live stream i observed Um, the conversation that this quote comes from is in response to a comment made during the live stream that read quote but the men are out working so the women are fighting end quote Um, to which both men um, really attempt to negotiate the absence of men's labor my hope is that this shows the intersection of anti-masking beliefs and sexism so Um, Chris, this comment says we need more men with balls or with parts, I guess you should say. James, no, we need effing men with balls. Chris, absolutely. James, we need more women with balls. There's actually more women with balls than there are men with balls in this fight. Chris, yeah, there are more women involved in this. That is a sad thing. James, because men's balls have been removed. We got men walking around carrying effing purses. We got men walking around acting like women. Chris. Men wearing red shoes. James, we got leaders of parties wearing high heels down the streets. for God's sake. It's no surprise, right? There are more women standing up because, you know, they are mama bears. They got to take care of their kids. They see the future. And, you know, the future doesn't look too good. So they stand up. Men, where are you? Not to say there isn't a lot of good men in this movement because there is. But there should be a whole lot freaking more. When you are getting dragged through the grocery store by your wife because she's scared of COVID and your head is down and you're pouting because you're wearing a mask and you're still trailing your wife in a grocery store because you got to listen to what she says, get a pair of nuts and tell your wife where it's at. Now, the expression, get a pair of balls and tell your wife where it's at, demonstrates the belief that men are heads of households and their wives should be submissive to their needs. Um, The clip also showcases, of course, the anti-masking beliefs, um, which represent an outlet for racial frustrations um, for freedom fighters that are produced by white fragility. Um, Now, white fragility is um, emotional expressions and reactions to any kind of um, racial stress. And it may not necessarily make a lot of sense to connect racial stress with a mask, um, but the larger point is that racial comfort and privilege is so normalized for white persons that any social stress produces volatile um, reactions. This is unconscious for many white people. um, And it's sometimes even impossible to recognize privilege or advantage because they themselves may not feel particularly privileged. Um, Freedom fighters, especially those that do not come from wealth, cannot recognize the operation of privilege in their own lives. Um, in Robert Livingston's book, um, The Conversation, how speaking, about, uh, speaking the truth about racism can radically transform individuals and organizations. Um, Livingston refers to a group of men who don't understand the operations of privilege because they don't feel especially fortunate or wealthy. Um, one of the men Livingston worked with makes a claim that white privilege can't benefit him because he isn't having tea with the queen Um, To which Livingston replies, quote, not having the benefit of attending tea with the queen is not the same as having the burden of harassment and violence of police, end quote. So white privilege is not just about the advantage or disadvantage of an individual white person. Um, It's about how whiteness and white supremacy as a whole benefits all white people, maybe in different ways, but in fact, in some way, and no matter their specific circumstance. So on this next slide here, um, white supremacy um, and its embodiment through freedom fighters, um, I argue, needs to be understood directly in its connection to colonialism. I want to first remind everyone that colonialism is not a um, historical time period, um, something that ha- that was and something that we just kind of need to move on from. Um, colonialism is still unfolding today, every day, in everyone's lives. Um, everyone even people of color engage in settler colonialism. Um, Benita Lawrence and Anakshi Dua highlight that, quote, though people of color have faced and still face marginalization and exclusion in Canada, people of color are still complicit in the ongoing land theft and colonial domination of indigenous peoples, end quote. Um, this is that kind of like structural component of violence that I will continue to emphasize. Everyone participates in colonialism and. Uh, It continues to drive policy and action, both at the macro level, like government decisions, and the micro level, like everyday thought and action. So freedom fighters seek through their white supremacy to continue this colonial agenda, but frame it differently in order to justify their actions. Um, This particular frame, our most recent recent, um, iteration of colonial action, is what they themselves and many others refer to as white genocide. Um, White genocide is a product of alt-right paranoia and fragility. Um, It's a conspiracy theory that claims um, progressive policy and liberal agendas um, are attempting to reduce the number of white people in countries like Canada and the United States. Um, People who believe this theory um, feel that initiatives like anti-racism are code for anti-white. They believe that the COVID-19 pandemic Um, is an extension of white genocide, um, that it is a hoax intended to force people into submission and turn a blind eye to initiatives that seek to destroy whiteness in Canada. Um, This formulation of the threat of white genocide um, provides groups like Freedom Fighters an idea to rebel against, um, to justify the actions that maintain whiteness and extend the colonial agenda. Um, freedom fighters do not conceive themselves as oppressors, but as liberators for all, um, especially white persons who are threatened by progressive initiatives. Um, they specifically target critical race theory and LGBTQ2A plus, um, education. Now, I want to be clear, um, they oppose these initiatives because they challenge con- conscious and unconscious privilege. Um, And white genocide is how freedom fighters go about reasoning through their actions to uphold violence because they know some things that they do is wrong, but they need a reason to do it. Um, And by upholding structural violence, they uphold colonialism in every form it may take. Now on this next slide here, um, I'm gonna talk a little bit about the other side to consider if we're gonna have a really holistic conversation about COVID-19 and colonialism. Um, Part of what I do as an anthropologist is to situate people, bodies, and culture within the larger system that they interact with. Um, It would be very unproductive to just point the finger at groups like freedom fighters alone. Um, Though these groups do in fact need to be held accountable, um, it's also important to remember that we are all products of a broken system. Um, This means being critical of those structures that perpetuate violence as much as individuals do. Um, In the case of my research, this means looking at public health uh, and its role in the COVID-19 pandemic and structural violence. Um, So this next slide here, we're gonna talk about um, uh, what I call the critical public health lens um, that I used. um, And the the main part of it focused on the historical connection that public health has to eugenics. Um, As Paul Lombardo suggests, Um, public health and eugenics are closely linked by history and ideology. Um, Leaders in both fields shared the same three ideas, prevention, efficiency, and progress. Um, It it was just these kinds of ideas um, that informed the forced sterilization of indigenous peoples um, who were deemed uh, a drain on collective resources instead of part of the collective. Um, And these concepts represent the basis of biomedicine and its dealings in social problems via the regulation of bodies. Now, public health prioritizes the collective over the individual and subsequently creates vulnerability in demographics that are racialized and of lower socioeconomic status. Um, These groups of people are completely left out of the conversation about health and public safety because they are presumed to be included in this collective when they're not. Um, I never began to imagine that public health was um, one that only belonged to some people before I began looking deeper into structural inequality um, that colonialism has made space for. And now this space continues the colonial agenda. Um, colonialism in Canada define these spaces in which we continue to assume belong to everyone Um, And thus we just kind of subconsciously ignore the differences among us. Um, Indigenous persons in Canada continue to fight for their space um, in this so-called public, not to be assimilated, but to be allowed to live healthy lives. But they continue to be forced out of these and have their lived experiences and ways of knowing effectively erased. Um, Gary Kinsman um, states that public health actively creates expendable populations of people deemed a necessary loss in order to maintain the health of the public. So in this way, we're really forced to ask whose health is public and how does this public become defined? Because it most certainly does not serve everyone in all the same ways. Um, Kinsman applies this critical public health lens um, to the mandates around COVID-19, highlighting that initiatives unable or unwilling to address difference are doomed to create expendable populations. For example, the initiative wash your hands among others um, does not work if you don't have access to clean water um, like many indigenous reservations across Canada and homeless populations. Um, Consequently, public health codes a general public um, that is white, middle-class and heterosexual. Um, And it is this public um, that renders people who are not able to fit into um, the right category and these people become expendable in the eyes of the government and policymakers. Um, and this is all done for the, to protect the public and the collective good. Now on this next slide here, we actually can see an example of um, how our government in Alberta participated in this kind of prioritization um, of lives just last summer. Um, the UCP government under Kenny's leadership embraced the slogan open for the summer. Um, They encouraged businesses to keep the economy going um, by placing their employees in harm's way. Um, And it is these employees, many of whom were part-time and left with no choice but to go back to work, who were forced into malls, restaurants, and other customer service industries. And they became expendable in order to save the economy. This caused a deadly fourth wave that cost many people their lives. Now, this isn't just the COVID-19 pandemic that creates circumstances in which some people become expendable for the collective good. This happens every single day through policy, practice, action, and inaction. Now, on this next slide here, I wanna kind of highlight that we can't consider public health and freedom fighters to be separate groups entirely, always in opposition to each other. Um, To get a full picture of expendability, we have to address the interactions between these two groups. Freedom Fighters represent that coded public population that is white, cisgender, heterosexual, masculine, and able-bodied. And through their actions throughout the pandemic in not wearing masks and refusing to get vaccinated, et cetera, they put their personal needs before the collective. And public health, with, with its inability to recognize the systemic issues built into the very foundation of it, go too far in the other direction um, and focus so much on the collective that they forget that individual difference and circumstance exists. Um, Together, they both trap bodies rendered expendable in a system of white supremacy and white nationalism um, that kills people. Now, um, we see on this next slide um, that the media Um, especially during the um, Freedom Convoy of 2022, um, but also throughout the pandemic, has presented to the public the narrative that these two groups fundamentally oppose each other. Um, I want you to reflect on whether that's true or not. Um, I'd like to argue that the opposition of these groups is only surface level at best. When we look deeper, we see that they are both informed by the same deep structures. Um, and they are both made possible by the legacy of colonialism and the superiority of whiteness in Canada. Both groups are founded upon the values of white supremacy and white nationalism. Both groups believe in the expendability of persons and both groups seek to bring this expendability into reality. Um, now on this next slide here, um, I wanna ask that you just take a minute to kind of reflect on COVID-19 through a lens of colonialism. The actions of public health and freedom fighters do in fact bring about expendability. And it's a great first step to recognize that, but we also need to consider the effect that this has had on actual people. Elder populations, um, because of how we kind of conceptualize them in a capitalist society, um, as in, you know, once you can no longer work and produce, you no longer have any value. um, They made up a disproportionate part of death rates due to COVID-19. Um, and also those who suffered from comorbidities um, were also another big demographic. Um, these comorbidities are often related to what's called social determinants of health, um, which is quote "the conditions in which people are born, grow, work, live, and age and are the wider set of forces and systems shaping the conditions of daily life. These forces and, and systems include economic policy and systems, developmental agendas, social norms, social policies, and political systems, end quote. And that comes from the uh, World Health Organization's definition. Now, these social determinants are affected both historically and contemporarily by colonialism. Poor health, especially in indigenous communities, is directly linked to colonialism and the intergenerational trauma and atrocities that these communities have suffered through. Um, now, the next slide here. Um, I. I hope that I've highlighted some new ideas and connections for you, um, or have helped to begin the process of recognizing the operation of colonialism, structural violence, and systemic issues. Um, Like I said, recognizing is a great first step, but it's only the first step. Um, We need to take more steps um, in our lives to decolonize. Um, The tough question though, is how do we do that? Firstly, as a non-Indigenous person and as a settler, Um, I urge you to look to indigenous people and knowledge keepers for their guidance. Um, For too long, they've been spoken for and not allowed to speak. Listen to what they have to say and go forward with the intent not to speak for them, but to amplify their voices and ask what they need. Um, With that being said, um, I want to acknowledge Cheyenne, uh, who's an indigenous scholar at the University of Regina um for guiding me and allowing me to share her perspective on decolonial actions you can take in your life um and one action that she recommended i share with you is the um is that of identifying as a settler and understanding what it means to be a settler the canadian identity tends to be very rosy um you know we're all super nice to each other we're overly polite Um, but for some people this identity is one of dispossession um Understanding how being here on this land as a non-Indigenous person, whether you are a person of color or not, means you have benefited and privileged from the theft of Indigenous lands and the genocide of Indigenous peoples. Talking about being a settler means acknowledging your privilege. Now, privilege can be something that automatically shuts people down, and I totally understand that. Um, But I urge that instead of shutting down, um, when you hear the word privilege directed towards you, you reflect instead. Um, Being told that you have privilege is not a bad thing and it doesn't inherently make you a bad person. Um, There are all kinds of privilege in the world. And your individual experiences, whether you grew up poor or you yourself have felt that kind of like grip of racism, those experiences are all valid. And I want you to know that acknowledging the privilege that you have as a settler does not disregard your individual pain or discomfort. Um, It's just a way of recognizing your relationship to the land um, and your relationship to the Indigenous peoples here. Saying settler is not a negative term and it's just a way to understand how our identities are bound up with the ongoing settler colonial project and structural violence. Um, This is just kind of like one active way we can begin the process of decolonization. Um, By recognizing that as a settler, we benefit from and are still complicit in colonialism, um, we can start to make changes in our life. And I hope that this is just a starting point um, to kind of start this little chain of events in your life of decolonizing your your everyday actions and thoughts. And that's all I've got today.
0: Thank you so much. I'm going to go and jump right into the Q&A, if you don't mind. Um, yeah. I've got a question here from Mark and Karen. Um, the Freedom Fighters participation in Leftbridge, in the Leftbridge Local Convoy seems <coughs> to me to be from several religious groups. How is this movement associated with a religion? And then a pastor in jail, exclamation mark.
1: Yes. Yeah. So I believe you're referring to um, Ardor Pulowski and his brother. Um, religion is is very tightly bound up in this, especially kind of the 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 religion's involvement in colonialization, especially when we look at kind of things like residential schools, um, where um, missionaries came and pushed um, their values on groups, and that kind of comes from this superiority of Catholicism and whiteness together. Um, yeah, it's. I didn't focus too much on religion in my research, um, but I was very aware of of the kind of use of Bible rhetoric to justify actions. Um, and it's present um, in nearly all of my um, interlocutors, just because it just gave like a justification for the actions that God was calling on people to rise up. And um, I there's it's kind of a thing I heard often where it's like Jesus was hated at first too they kind of use that to justify how their actions are hurting people. Um, so religion has a huge factor. Um, I'm kind of hoping that I get to look a little bit more into it in my future work.
0: Excellent. Kenneth um, Peterson, many thanks, Kathleen, for your excellent presentation. Do you think freedom fighters are a new thing, or have they always been there, only to now serve us largely due to social media connections?
1: Um, yeah, they have been around for quite a long time. Um, one of my main participants, um, he's, he says he's been what he calls politically homeless um, since he was in his 20s. And I think he's now in his 60s-ish. Um, so this kind of like political homelessness comes from what they think is being so far right that no parties um, in Canada represent them anymore. Um, and So, yes, they they have been around for quite a long time Um, and the pandemic only just like kind of amplified things because now it was a sudden kind of marked way that they were like, hey, the government is oppressing us. And it was it, it was just it was so sudden. And like, I mean, personally, I felt like the pandemic happened overnight that they they didn't have time to kind of adjust to new social circumstances. And of course, social media totally helps that they can vocalize their opinion all day, every day, um, anonymously with no kind of threat to their lives. And so they, yeah, they, they were reinvigorated by the pandemic and social media and it was kind of like a perfect storm kind of idea where they could also connect to like minded people and then organize events in person. And so definitely have been along um around for a long time. This the also the idea of white genocide has been along for a very uh, been around for a very long time. Um, and so they the once the pandemic, I mean, they think that the pandemic is over. Um, once the pandemic is actually over, um, and everything is fully lifted, they're going to continue to exist after as well. This is a new reinvigoration and it's very important to pay attention to how um, alt-right interacts with groups like freedom fighters, because not all of them, I would say are alt right, but many of them are, Um, how those interact and how that's gonna move forward in terms of um, political action and disaction.
0: Um, Could you comment a little bit more about how you said the alt-right and then how Maybe there's this 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 part of of conspiracy theory people, and there seems to be quite a lot of quote unquote lefties or people who aren't necessarily alt right sort of merging in to this group to form a larger space.
1: Yeah, it's it's a very strange space. I will say I don't think I've ever encountered anything like freedom fighters. Um, I will say the majority of them are you know traditional right conservative people. Um, it's also this is also very wrapped up in the um, People's Party of Canada. Many freedom fighters are huge supporters of the People's Party of Canada. And they kind of the mo- majority of them are converted, they say converted from the Conservative Party. But I've also run into many of them that have come from the NDP and the Liberal Party, vote, people who were lifelong voters of the Liberal Party and the NDP Party, suddenly voting for Maxime Bernier, who seems to embody the complete opposite of what the NDP and Liberal parties do. And I've kind of encountered this common theme of conspiracy theory within that. It is so, the unknown is so scary to people that they are fully rearranging their lives. To find a community that they feel safe and established, and it's it it's again it's really wrapped up with whiteness. Um, um, I find a lot of the like kind of lefties who have joined in um, to the freedom fighter movement are white, and so it's this kind of like fear of I don't the world is changing. It's not looking like it's really me anymore. So I need to go find a group where I can be safe and. Part of that is huge, like, hugely embodied within conspiracy theory. QAnon is a huge one, um, kind of the idea that the government is being run by a satanic cabal of pedophiles. Um, it's just, like, it's this fear of the unknown and, uh, and uh, an inability, of, because of the history of colonialism, to deal with any social stress and any social pressure. And that pushes people into the groups, like, freedom fighters. But they are, like, crazy diverse in terms of political or old political beliefs. Um, I'll say they're less diverse in terms of, like, race, um, sexuality, those kinds of things, but, of course, I can't homogenize the whole group.
0: Lori Schultz, uh, thank you, Kathleen, for sharing your research. Can you elaborate on the theory or premise behind the Great Reset?
1: Yes. So, the Great Reset is, honestly, it's a... It's a book written by Klaus Schwab um, from the World economic economic Forum from just like me reading it, it's kind of a scary book to read because it it suggests all of these huge radical changes and suggests that they're going to happen really quickly. And it's scary even to me, someone who is open to to radical change, just to kind of like read it and 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 look at what's going on. And so the great reset claims that the pandemic has, Um, offered an opportunity for us to really go about changing systemic issues um, and reevaluating structures like capitalism, especially because capitalism is an extractive practice, no matter the form it takes. Um, And so the Great Reset claims that um, this is an opportunity for us to kind of look at socialist and communist um, systems and go about changing how capitalism functions and kind of like controls our very lives. Um, And so, there's the book, I read the first edition, I think that there's a newer edition out um, of the book, Um, but freedom fighters read the book, many of them have read the book, and they kind of use it as like an anti-bible, I want to say, as of like, hey, look at this, he wrote it out in plain English that he wants communism to happen, this is a threat, the Red Scare kind of ideology that's always persisted. Um, they use it to, to, to show people that they're not conspiracy theorists, that this is actually happening. The World Economic Forum is actually thinking about this. And we're not conspiracy theorists, we're realists, they call themselves. And so it, it, it's, a, it's a way for them to, again, like articulate how their actions aren't harmful. They're not anti-anything. They're pro-freedom, pro-whiteness, pro-Canada.
0: Next question comes from Buff. Um, Mundo. When Kenny tried to placate the anti-vaxxers by relaxing mask mandates, especially in schools, why did they turn against him?
1: They they turned against Kenny because they they thought that Kenny was too late on that. Um they thought that a true conservative leader would have never let those mandates happen in the first place. And so Kenny's reputation was tarnished by, by letting those mandates happen in the first place, um, by not standing up to the big bad that is Trudeau, um, and those kinds of things. And it's actually one of the my earliest realizations was, I mean, I personally don't have a lot of love for Kenny. Um, and one of the first ways I connected with my uh, participants was they also absolutely hated Kenny and everything Kenny did. Um, of course, for very different reasons, I dislike him for different reasons than they do. Um, but it was it was very prominent from the get-go on how much they disliked him. And when they when he took down the mandates, that wasn't him standing up for them, that was them winning their freedom fight. It had nothing to do with him. It was their pressure on him.
0: Amy Mack, wonderful presentation. Could you talk about gender differences do men and, men and women have different concerns or motives lots of attention a f- lot of attention focused on men yet women have a history in the anti-vax movements
1: Yeah um, part of this comes from um, the gender like the patriarchy and um, the traditional gender roles um. Men conceptualize the men of the freedom fighter groups conceptualize women within their group as like basically reduced to biological essentialism. They're mama bears. The reason why they're fighting for freedom is because they have to protect their children, and it's their natural instincts of mom that's that's uh, that's driving everything. And and women, in order to within this movement, in order to please the men but also feel pleased within themselves, accept this narrative within themselves and say that yes. My role as a woman is to protect my children and to support my husband. Um, now, of course, the, the majority of prominent figures and leaders within the movement are men, um, but I actually did have um, uh, one woman, she's from BC, um, who was very active in the community. She had tons of followers. She had her own show and a live stream. She was actually one of the more popular um, kind of prominent figures that I, um, that I worked with. And she was the exception to the rule, not the rule. Um, And because she was a woman in the public eye within this um, movement, she also kind of becomes like a way to like a token of sorts of saying, no, we're not sexist. We support women. Look at this woman who's talking and who we let speak. But then they also make space for the men to um, be the leaders and the prominent figures. And they do that with people of color as well. They'll have their token, you know, and it's very stereotypical. They'll have the, their token person of color that they point to and say, "I'm not racist. Look at this, my this is my friend. I can't be racist." And so women kind of fill this role of of justification, um but also within their own right, are conscious of what they're doing um, and how their actions are affecting people. Um, and I find, honestly, some women are are the bigger problem because they are so adamant on blindly supporting anything that their husbands or partners say that they immediately shut down people and will never have a conversation with you, um, which is really interesting. Um, and I, that's another thing I'm hoping to look more into is women's role in white supremacy because it's an impressive structure to be within. And so how do they make life make care Within these structures, it's a really interesting thing that I'm looking. I want like to look into.
0: Obviously, you've you've made quite a few connections within this community. How has your research been um, received? Have they read it? Um,
1: <laughs> so, the decision was made for my personal safety to not send out my full thesis um, because um, I very early on was marked as not white. Um, I'm only half white um, and my last name is Chinese and the anti-Asian hate was at a super high point um, during my research. And it was not exactly safe for me to identify myself fully, especially online. Um, And so I honestly don't know how they reacted to it because it was a choice to preserve my safety. Um, because their, their actions are incredibly dangerous. And I te- um, attended to freedom rallies in person in Lethbridge. And I was there and I saw the way that they interacted with each other and the rhetoric they used, and I just felt totally unsafe. And so that's another kind of thing I'm trying to work towards is, is now that I'm armed with this kind of knowledge through my research, I wanna have conversations with them again about what they think about things versus, you know, how I'm kind of tr- like representing them. And of course it kind of runs the risk of them claiming that I'm not representing them accurately. Um, but because of my position as, as a woman of color, I had to make a decision to, to, to prioritize my safety.
0: Knut um, Peterson, the fact that many CPC politicians, including our own MP, Try to buddy up to the freedom fighters seems to indicate that they are counting on the movement to get stronger. What are your comments on that, please?
1: Yeah, for sure. I think it was kind of this like roller coaster of now nah, these are bad people. Oh wait, there's a lot of them. Oh wait, now I think I've got a voter base. Um, and specifically again, I'm going to kind of turn back to the PPC party, Maxine Bernier is i um, an intimidating person because he changes his rhetoric based on like completely changes it based on who he's talking to and who he's interacting with. And to me, that's just like the problem with politics right now is it's more concerned. They're more concerned about their voter base and less concerned about what actions are actually happening and, and the violence that it, that's happening. And I find it very concerning that, especially like the freedom convoy in Alberta our politicians were like, Yes, go go get Ottawa. You go tell them more Alberta, less Ottawa. And that's kind of like a rhetoric that's that it has been around for a long time. And so it, it started off as kind of denouncing them because they felt like they had to, the media was putting pressure on them. And now they've seen that this is a voter base for them. And um, the conservatives especially lost a lot of votes to the PPC in the federal election. And so they're trying to like, kind of like, bring everybody back in by like butting up with them and saying, "We're going to support you. We're listening to you. We really believe in your cause."
0: The next question kind of um, is is similar, but but I'd like you to answer it because it talks a little bit more about a threat to democracy. So, do you think the movement will be building and become a more serious threat to our democracy?
1: I I do. Um, when I was watching the Freedom Convoy, I really thought about um, the invasion of the Capitol and the States. Like, it, to me, there were so many parallels within it, and the kind of, like, I don't know, I think it was, like, weeks it took for the government to take action to to, to move these people, like, just shows that because of their positions of as white people they have this privilege that they can leverage to really put pressure on systems like democracy. Um, But when you look at like indigenous land defenders who are immediately met with violence, you you, you see how the government is just almost unconsciously curtailing to the white privilege that exists within Canada systemically. And it's a huge threat to democracy because we are not able to recognize the root of the problem in the different treatment of these two groups and the two groups' different agendas.
0: Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. Uh, The Kutz Border Convoy participants appear to have been a mix of people, ranging from non-political individuals to others identifying themselves as freedom fighters. Can you comment on the impact of this?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, I wish I kind of had my, because my work was the summer before. um, And I, I watched um, everything with the convoy unfolds um, on my phone through social media and on the news. And I, at this time, I was consciously like taking a break from this work, because it's mentally draining. Um, But when I was watching it, I just couldn't believe the kinds of things that were being said. And even on my own social media, people who I have been great friends with and have had great conversations about systemic issues were suddenly like supporting the convoy. And I was just kind of like, what is going on? How, how are these people who, who I know don't believe in this supporting such a violent movement that is to me, crystal clear, like was crystal clear a white supremacist movement. But I, I think I'm kind of uncovering that it's not so clear to a lot of people the systemic issues and the effect that these kinds of things have. It's, It was lots of people like pandemic fatigue, tired of the lockdowns, tired of the mass mandates, tired of the vaccines. They saw this kind of like grand movement and felt invigorated by it because, I mean, everyone is tired of sitting in their house and you know all those things, even though most of those mandates had come down at that time. And so it was kind of, I think, a miscommunication of, of what was going on. And as more things started to come out about like Pat King and his connections, less and less people started to support it. And so I think the kind of like diversity um, comes a lot from pandemic fatigue and then their own social privilege. Like I said, privilege takes many forms. You don't have to be white and rich to have privilege. Um, I myself have privilege. You know, lots of people in this room, everyone in this room has some kind of privilege, right? And so it, it, it comes from, from fragility and from, from fatigue.
0: In Ottawa, um, we saw a lot of folks from Quebec participate within the movement, and specifically, sort of separatist, right, leanings. Um, Interestingly, it was a real buddy-buddy with Alberta, which, you know, Alberta being kind of anti-Quebec, was a very weird, yet again, a very weird mix. Can you speak about how, you know, certainly what what we saw in Ottawa was this coming together of Alberta separatists and 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 Quebec separatists.
1: yeah, it's it's strange. Like I have no other way to describe it than than strange. It seems that you know contradiction is a very big part of of this kind of identity. You know, I grew up my whole life hearing how much how bad Quebec was and then, you know, like how much Quebec hated everyone else and and all those things. And so to see those ideologies converge again, it, it's like it's scary to see how this is unifying people who have generally and historically greatly disagreed. And again, it's I still have to do more investigating on what exactly is going on. But, you know, my first instinct is it's just as systemic issues that, you know, we have this surface level of opposition. But when we look deeper, we actually realize that a lot of people agree on a lot of things. And it's this kind of deep structure that is informing who joins these movements. Uh,
0: Beth Mendo, how does your analysis relate to the theory of dominant and subordinate discourses? Do the freedom fighters see themselves as the dominant discourse being dethroned, and if so, by whom?
1: Absolutely. Um, they 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 target. They call them um, libtards. That's what they they call them. Um, they they target liberal people. Um, and and they also highlight queer people as, as kind of an enemy, and so. For sure, this has to do, and it's also kind of like this rhetoric of, um, of feeling like the victim um, and feeling like their space at the top of the hierarchy, which has been maintained for pretty much all of time, is suddenly kind of being tipped over and uprooted. And this is kind of what I talked about of, of how Canada and Western culture is moving away from the normalization and the universalization of a white body. And they see this as a threat and they know that their voices are the ones that have mattered and will, should continue to matter. And so when people take action and liberal agendas are, are put in place, they especially absolutely hate critical race theory. Like they think that critical race theory is absolute hokum. When those things kind of are supported governmentally, they're like, oh, no, 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 they can't speak for us. They don't know how we're feeling. We speak for everybody because we know what's really going on, because they've been taught historically that their body is the universal experience.
0: Yet, interestingly enough, they use the whole HIV AIDS thing about disclosure. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Next question is from um, Lauren Schultz, a big question. In your opinion, what is the path back to democracy?
1: That is a huge question. <laughs> um, I honestly don't know if I can answer that just because it's, it's so complicated and complex and dynamic, and it's also ever changing. And, you know, I'm like my biggest, my biggest thing that I kind of continue forward with is um, the opposite of hope is not hopelessness, it is complacency. And so my kind of, take is that as long as I'm not complacent with the way that the world is it's okay for me to feel super disappointed about the, the direction that the world is going as long as I'm making actions to do things and so a road back to democracy I don't I can't necessarily map out and that makes me really scared that I have no idea how to get there but I'm also you know comfort in the fact that I'm not going to be complacent about it and I'm going to continue to strive for change
0: Kurt Peterson, were you disappointed seeing law enforcement, for whatever reason, being largely ineffective in stopping the blockades?
1: Absolutely. I could not describe how angry I was, especially seeing how, like I said, Indigenous land defenders are immediately met with extreme violence whenever they try and do absolutely anything. And, you know... I couldn't understand how the freedom fighters were literally blocking off Ottawa, tr- like destroying the city, the horns, you know, people have said who lived in downtown Ottawa, like they had to be hospitalized because of the the honking for a month straight. I just can't reconcile in my brain why it took law enforcement so long to do anything. And that kind of is like, how I felt, how I had that realization about public health, how there is no such thing as, as a grand public. Public is a certain demographic of people. And that's the kind of same thing with law enforcement. I thought that this kind of threat to democracy that was happening in our capital would have pushed them to do something. But now I've realized that, you know, we've known because of the Black Lives Matter movement that Um, policing and systemic issues within policing has always been a huge problem but now it's kind of so crystal clear that that the marking of certain bodies as white absolutely can guarantee that you have access to violence uh, to perpetuate violence that that no one else in this world has and it's terrifying and it it makes me so angry I remember staring at my phone and I'm like what are they doing why aren't they doing anything like I just couldn't reconcile it
0: Uh, Lauren Schultz, in your interaction with freedom fighters, did they comment on what their responsibilities are to having rights and freedoms?
1: Yes, um, they are the champions of rights and freedoms. They are the ones that are bringing about rights and freedoms to absolutely everybody and anybody. And it's not just white people. They make that clear. It's not just white people that we're bringing um, rights and freedoms to. Um, and it was actually funny. I took a class um, uh, on the charter this semester, um, this past past semester, and it it made me recognize that that access to charter rights and freedoms is so difficult and so particular to a very teeny group um, of people in Canada. And so the freedom fighters conceptualizing themselves as champions of rights and freedoms, I think, is also kind of not understanding that to them, especially those who were of lower socioeconomic status, they didn't have access, they wouldn't have access to to charter rights and freedoms because they couldn't afford to go to courts and bring these kinds of things about. And so I think it was a mixture of misusing the charter and also um, misunderstanding their place in the charter because the majority of them are not represented by the charter either. Um, the charter only really represents wealthy, um, white people. And so I think, you know, the, the identify, the identification of champions of the charter is just, I hope that they come to realize that they also need to call for large systemic reevaluation of our structures, especially things like the charter.
0: That's everybody in the queue. Thank you so much, Kathleen. That was really a wonderful session and and thank you for such a great in-depth look into this movement. It was fascinating. Um, before we wrap up the session, do you have a talk- take home message for our viewers?
1: Yeah, um, my take home message is really that the fear and the 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 unknown out there you should, it's okay to be scared, and it's okay to be unsure. Um, and like I said, you know, as long as you're not okay with things the way they are, you are totally okay with being scared and not knowing what to do. I think we, especially in academia, we have a lot of pressure to know what the right move forward is, and to, and to understand everything and, and, and have every option mapped out. We're never going to have every option mapped out. But having these conversations with each other and understanding each other is the only way that we can begin to move forward. And really look, I'm always gonna advocate, look to indigenous voices because they should be allowed to speak for themselves. And they are the ones who have experienced colonization the most, right? They should be the ones that get to speak about the path forward.
0: Um, I'd like to read out a few thank yous. There's lots. Um... <laughs> Lloyd Schultz, excellent presentation, Kathleen, thank you. Beth Mundell, thank you so much, Kathleen, good luck in in academia. Then Knut Peterson. many thanks, Kathleen, for bringing your research to SACPA. Kat Fuller, awesome presentation, thank you for sharing. Also on behalf, um, read the comments because there's more coming in um, <laughs> after this session. On behalf of SACPA, thank you so much for joining us today. And folks listening today, Uh, Join us last week for our last session uh, of the season with Michael McCready. What are the possibilities and challenges of virtual and augmented reality? And then also to let you know that our AGM will be on um, the 23rd of June. And if you wanna participate, please buy a membership. Okay, Uh, more information on getting your membership is in the Chat. chat at the top. Wonderful. Thanks for joining us and see you next week.